Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been um, kind of a cheesy tradition in comedy, humor, human humor. The um, confusion between homophones, two words that sound the same but are possibly spelled differently and, and certain mean, certainly mean different things. It's been, you know, kind of corny by the time you and I came along. But that's all changed now that machines are doing the work. As at Facebook. It is news of the smart, smart world we live in. Facebook algorithms sometimes flag the word ho, H-O-E, as used on a Facebook gardening group. The machine, back in uh, Zuck world, thinks that word violates hum- community standards because it's referring to a homophone. The ho without an e at the end. Normally, Facebook automated systems will flag posts with offending material and delete them. But if a group's members or administrators violate the rules too many times, the entire group can get shut down. This is not theoretical. There's a um, Facebook gardening group in western New York. Elizabeth Licata is one of the group's moderators. The WNY Gardeners, more than 7,500 members strong, use it to get gardening tips and advice, especially popular during the pandemic when, what else are you going to do? Licata was not about to ban the word ho from the group or to try to delete each instant. When a group member commented, push, pull, ho, on a post asking for your most loved and indispensable weeding tool, Oh, to be in this group. Facebook sent a notification that said, we reviewed this comment and found it goes against our standards for harassment and bullying. Unquote. Facebook, according to the Associated Press, uses both human moderators and artificial intelligence to root out material that violates its rules. It's likely that a human might have known that a hoe, H-O-E, in a gardening group is likely not an instance of harassment or bullying, but not A-I. Not always good at context, nuances of language. It also misses a lot. Users often complain that they report violent or abusive language in Facebook rules. It's not in violation of community standards. Misinformation on vaccines and elections has long been a problem for the company, but on the flip side are groups like Licata's that often get up in overly zealous algorithms. So I contacted Facebook, which was useless, she said. How do you do that? You know, I said this is a gardening group. A hoe is a gardening tool. Unquote. Licata said she never heard from a person at Facebook and found navigating the social network system of surveys and ways to try to set the record straight was futile. A Facebook rep contacted by the AP said in an email that the company found the group and corrected the mistaken enforcements. It also put an extra 
check in place, meaning that someone, an actual human, will in the future check offending posts before the group is considered for deletion. The company wouldn't say if other gardening groups had similar problems. In this past January, Facebook mistakenly flagged the UK landmark of Plymouth Hoe, H-O-E, as offensive, and then apologized, according to The Guardian. Quote, quote Facebook, We have plans to build out better customer support for our products and to provide the public with even more information about our policies and how we enforce them. Then something else came up. Licata received a notification that Facebook automatically disabled commenting on a post because of possible violence, incitement, or hate in multiple comments. The offending comments included, quote, kill them all, drown them in soapy water, unquote, and, quote, Japanese beetles are jerks, unquote. Oh, it's pretty lively at that gardening group, isn't it? Too lively for the Facebook machine in this smart, smart world. Hello, welcome to the show.
Mountain, right near the ocean, the home of the homeless here in Southern California. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. I guess I now have to say the the house of the unhoused. It doesn't quite... You know, a house is only one kind of home. So if you say on... Home of the home... And now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Really? Oh, yeah. The Pentagon is taking a rare look at whether it is prepared to deal with the theft or compromise of the portable communication system nicknamed the nuclear football. That enables the president or a stand-in to order a nuclear attack. In announcing the probe this week, the Pentagon's inspector general, or his office, didn't disclose what caused the uh, decision to begin the probe. Questions about security procedures did arise in the aftermath of a little thing called January 6th at the Capitol. Vice President Mike Pence was seen on security camera video being escorted to safety along with a military aide carrying the backup nuclear football as rioters entered the Capitol. A backup system always accompanies the vice president so that he is able to communicate in the event the president cannot. The football, officially called the Presidential Emergency Satchel, enables communication with the office inside the Pentagon that transmits nuclear attack orders. Hey, Satch! The Inspector General's office said its review began this month. It gave no timeline for completing it. Two Democratic members of Congress asked the Inspector General to review the matter. The stinging criticism of the FBI's Indianapolis field office in a report issued a few days ago by the Inspector General of the Department of Justice raises a lot of questions, according to the Indianapolis Star. Those who can help explain the roles and motivations of key agents cited in the report, that report found misconduct including lying and ethical breaches in connection with the failure to follow up on 2015 reports about sexual abuse allegations against longtime USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nassar, they they can help explain it, but they aren't, because they aren't talking. Failings by local FBI agents allowed Nasser to continue sexually abusing women and young girls. The Department of Justice report said at least 70 were molested during the nearly year-long belay, delay in pursuing the allegations. An attorney for Nasser's survivors said the number is more than 120. Nasser's reign of sexual abuse was finally stopped by police at Michigan State University after it was publicly exposed by an investigation in the newspaper. Without a full explanation of how and why local agents squandered the opportunity to stop Nasser a year earlier than they did, some say the rebuke threatens to leave a cloud over other local cases the FBI has investigated and prosecuted. The Inspector General's report found that the agent in charge of the Indianapolis FBI office and another unnamed supervisory agent made false statements and omitted important information in a 2017 report and then 
lied to the inspector general investigators looking into the report. The agent in charge also provided, quote, materially false statements during interviews to minimize errors made by the Indianapolis field office. And the report added that the agent in charge, W.J. Abbott, hey, Abbott, violated ethics guidelines when he met with USA Gymnastics President Steve Penny at a bar in 2015 to discuss a job opportunity with the Olympic and Paralympic Committee, even as the Nassar investigation was pending. He was the FBI agent in charge, met to discuss a job opportunity with the Olympics that he was investigating. The FBI office in Indianapolis referred questions to the national office declining to answer questions from the newspaper or to make the current special agent in charge available for an interview. The inspector general found that as the public congress and media and FBI headquarters first began asking questions four years ago about the FBI's handling of the Nassar case, Indianapolis officials did not take responsibility for their failures. Quote, instead, they provided incomplete and inaccurate information to make it appear they had been diligent in responding to sexual abuse allegations. Unquote. The National Office of the FBI uh, has begun work to make changes. The director started a review of policies, procedures, training, and programs to improve how the FBI handles abuse allegations. The agency is also updating its operating manual. (laughs) Oh, to have a copy of that. Federal investigators have issued a scathing audit of a Montana nonprofit organized to end violence against Native American women and children. Montana Native Women's Coalition mismanaged almost $350,000 in federal grant money over three years, according to the Inspector General for the Justice Department. The audit audit follows criminal convictions of two former coalition executives, two board members, and an employee on charges ranging from theft to wire fraud. That's like from A to B, isn't it? At issue is how the coalition spent money from three federal grants, almost a million dollars from the Office on Violence Against Women. Investigators found that more than a third of the money was misspent. In many cases, the paper trail for explaining where the money went was non-existent. Can't help you. Don't know. No paper. Over the last 20 years, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, has failed to enforce a law that would have made U.S. cities and towns more resilient to the impacts of climate change. And that's according to a recent federal investigation by the Office of Inspector General in the Department of Homeland Security. The law required that FEMA write regulations and create policies to encourage communities to prepare for natural disasters and rebuild their infrastructure after emergency events to make it more resilient, like improving stormwater management or strengthening buildings against quakes. FEMA was supposed to restrict the amount of federal funds available to communities to repair repetitively damaged infrastructure from 75 to 25 percent of the cost of the project. But instead, the new report shows the same bridges and roads were repaired over and over again using FEMA aid, and in one case, seven times, costing taxpayers almost $2 billion from 2009 to 2018. 
For disasters, every federal dollar spent on mitigating risks today saves $6 in the future, according to the National Institute of Building Sciences. Adopting recommended building codes saves $11 for every dollar spent. It all reduces the risk of injuries, fatalities, and property loss. The report from the Inspector General only looked at one FEMA disaster category, roads and bridges out of seven, so the real impact of the agency's noncompliance with the law is likely much greater. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversall III. Well, some problems attended the opening week of the Tokyo Olympics. A famous Japanese musician stepped down as the composer for the Tokyo Olympics after admitting to the inhuman of sexual abuse of disabled children as a schoolboy. He's now 52. Keigo Oyamata, known as Cornelius, became the latest senior male Olympic figure to resign in disgrace days before the ceremony at which his work was to be performed. Olympic organizers initially said that having apologized, he would continue in his role. Then they did an abrupt about turn after a wave of revulsion followed the reemergence of Oyamata's gleeful confessions made in interviews with two magazines in 1995 when he was a young pop star. Yeah, I did inhuman things, he told Rockin' on Japan. Quote, I'd strip a disabled child naked and tie him up in string and make him masturbate. I made him eat poop and then jumped on him, unquote. In other interviews, he admitted mocking children with Down syndrome at a local school and rolling a disabled child up in a mattress and stuffing him inside a gymnasium vaulting horse. One of the journalists who interviewed him said he laughed as he spoke. So I guess his music wasn't in the ceremony. And the organizing committee fired the director of the opening ceremony the day before it happened because of a Holocaust joke he made during a comedy show in 1998. A little late doing the research, boys and girls. Organizing Committee President Seiko Hashimoto said that Director Kantaro Kobayashi had been dismissed. He was accused of using a joke about the Holocaust in his comedy act, including the phrase, quote, let's play Holocaust, unquote. Quote, Mr. Hashimoto, we deeply apologize for causing such a development the day before the opening ceremony and for causing troubles and concerns to many involved parties, as well as the people in Tokyo and the rest of the country. A couple more. Hiroshi Sasaki stepped down as creative director for the opening and closing ceremonies after suggesting a Japanese actress should dress as a pig. And this week, the chiropractor for the American women's wrestling team apologized after comparing Olympic COVID-19 protocols to Nazi Germany in a social media post. That's getting around. In the lead-up to the Games, two former gymnasts and survivors of sexual abuse are opening up about their experiences and calling out the institutions they say were complicit in the scandal that's rocked Team USA in recent years. Sarah Klein and Amanda Smith are among the hundreds of known victims of Dr. Larry Nasser. They're still on the road to recovery. 
Nasser mentioned earlier in this broadcast is a convicted sex offender serving several sentences amounting to life in prison for the sexual assault of young women and minors. Klein and Smith recently spoke out about his perverse behavior. Gymnast Smith, who started being molested by Nasser at the age of nine, he was largely enabled by John Geddert, who coached the gold medal winning U.S. women's gymnastics team during the 2012 London Olympics and took his own life in February after being charged with enough counts of human trafficking and sexual abuse to face life in prison. But it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. By the way, abuse at the hands of men like Nasser wasn't just unchecked for at least a year by the FBI in Indianapolis. It also initially went unchecked by USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic Committee. USA Gymnastics, named in several lawsuits regarding the scandal, came under fire for its handling of sex abuse allegations against Nasser after the uh, initial bombshell report by the Indianapolis Star. In addition to losing several major sponsors, the body also faced criticism from many U.S. senators for waiting five weeks to report Nasser to authorities after learning of the allegations against him in 2015. And the Olympic Committee, which also faces dozens of related lawsuits, was additionally accused by Congress of a cover-up. The uh, USOC, quote, knowingly concealed abuse by Nasser, unquote, after it received information about his behavior more than a year before action was taken. Both organizations have denied culpability, but have since adopted policies aimed at preventing future abuse. We don't look backwards, we look forwards. Speaking of the Olympics, of course, they're going on right now. Aren't they? I wouldn't know. Um, They do have this habit of adding new events to the games each time around, and you can tell what audience they're trying to attract by the events that they add to the schedule. Uh, This year, it's skateboarding and three-on-three basketball, both men's and women's. It's described by The Guardian as one of the urban lifestyle-inspired sports being added. I guess unlike two-on-two or one-on-one or four-on-four, all of which I've played, But I'm not urban lifestyle inspired. I could have told you that. Well, I just did. So skateboarding, as I say, sport climbing and surfing, new to these Olympics. Quoting IOC President Thomas Bach, underlining what I just told you. Quote, we want to take sport to the youth. With the many options that young people have, we cannot expect any more that they will come automatically to us. We have to go to them, unquote. Reminds me of um, an earlier day, the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984, when they introduced a couple of sports that clearly aimed at reversing the male skew of the television audience in prior years. Those events were rhythmic gymnastics, you know, with the, with the ribbons and stuff, and synchronized swimming. The motives 
for adding another sport to the Winter Olympics, as you'll hear next, weren't so clear. You take the intensity of athletic competition, combine it with the grace and subtlety of classical dance, and amazingly enough, some people will spend half their lives practicing it. We're talking about an event included in the Winter Olympics this year for the very first time. Ice tennis. America's field with a strong crop of youngsters in this challenging event. Chief among them, 16-year-old Kimberly Key from Huntington Beach, California. At my side, add analysis and more importantly, emotional impact to these proceedings is our own Dick Butman. Key's ice tennis was invented in Malmo, Sweden, uh, in 1958. It was a demonstration event in Lake Placid four years ago. And last year, an ice tennis exhibition was the hit of the Knoxville World's Fair. Basically, it consists of both a regular game of tennis played across a net on a rectangular ice surface two-thirds the size of the hockey surface and an exhibition of rhythmic technical moves with the racket on the ice to music. It is scored both for technical excellence as well as for artistic value as well, and to that are added whatever points are scored in the actual game with the ball. And that ball is something else, Dick. A normal tennis ball, if subjected to these kind of temperatures, would tend to, as the athletes say, sort of mush out. That's right. It is a special prop of... Po- I can't say that. Polypropylene composition ball, and they are made only in Yugoslavia, about 35 miles north of where we are right now, as well as in Sweden and Belgium. Moments away now, a possible turning point for America in these games. 16-year-old Kimberly Key from Huntington Beach, California, and her partner Everett Min in their second compulsory game where all strokes have to be backhands. But first, let's meet 16-year-old Kimberly Key from Huntington Beach, California, up close and personal. It's a long, long way from Cameron Bay, Vietnam to Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. But 16-year-old Kimberly Key only made half the trip. The daughter of Vietnamese refugees and the cousin of former Vice President Key, Kimberly grew up in the Orange County suburb of Huntington Beach, where her cousin runs two liquor stores. While war was still raging in her homeland, Kimberly was beginning the arduous routine of practicing those ice tennis routines up to eight hours a day. Every day. Her former coach, Don Blyweiss, recalls those early days. She was very small, very quick, very uh, determined. Uh, aside from coming late to practice and uh, occasionally, you know, talking that goony talk when she got emotional, she was a marvelous little person to coach. But it's not easy to remain committed to a sport that no one in your adopted country has ever heard of. Kimberly's father recalls a major turning point. She stopped the ice tennis for a couple of years and took up the trombone instead. It was uh, very hard to find good ice in California, and she could never get a partner at her skill level. Uh, So she joined her school band late in the year, and trombone was the only instrument they had left. It was a hard period for all of us especially the neighbors. Then Everett Min, another refugee child, moved into the neighborhood and reignited Kimberly's urge for greatness. Kimberly remembers meeting Everett for the very first time. He was this great-looking Vietnamese guy and a great ice skater, too, you know? And something just went boing inside my head. Here we are today, you know? 
They call her the Dragon Lady of the Frozen Courts. Not so much for her gritty determination, but just because she's Oriental. Dick, we've started. The second compulsory is possibly the most demanding of the ice tennis routines. Backhand strokes perfectly timed to musical selections, which the rules require to be from several different areas, eras, sorry, in international pop music. And of course, you want the shots to be good because the team accumulates points each time either partner scores but you get more points for maintaining the flow of your routine to the music. Plus, of course, general appearance. Ah, oh, that's a double camel by Kimberly. And a lovely passing shot, too. Single camel, extra top spin. What's that on the ice, Nick? That's a pack of camels. Looks like it fell out of Everett's pocket during his lob moves. Oh, line violation there. You will be downscored for that. Keep in mind, of course, the score for this team to beat 111 of the West German team, Christilla Schmid and Manfred Kleinbauer. At this point, we really have no idea how they're doing. Final part of the routine now. They will play at the net and in one and a half rapinard on each shot. This could be exquisite or quite remarkably bad. There's Kimberley's. Everett just makes it all the way around. Oh, bad fall there. Now, the fall doesn't necessarily disqualify you. No, it gets you out of your rhythm, and it gets the back of your costume wet. Ah, yes. A nice tennis appearance does count. And ending it with the flying ace. Yes. Yes. Very nicely done. These two young Americans have everything in the world to be proud of. Win, lose, or no opinion. A crowd of appreciative spectators has fallen in love with 16-year-old Kimberly Key of Huntington Beach, California. And with her partner, Everett Min. And the judges equally smitten, apparently. An 11, a 12, a 7 and 3 quarters. Oh, excellent scores right across the board. The 7 and 3 quarters is from the judge from Nicaragua. And it totals 133 points after the second compulsories, giving Key and Min a lock on the goal. Coming up, luge vaulting from Sarajevo and Jim Lampley with an amusing piece explaining why some of the people here don't speak any English. From the House of the Unhoused, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend, the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Save to save to meter. Save, save to save to meter. Hey, what's cooking with the South Koreans? It's a trick question. South Korea's Olympic team will cook food for its athletes separately and screen ingredients for radiation during the Olympics. That's a potential further irritant to uh, those not-so-great relations between Seoul and Tokyo. South Korea has periodically irked Japan with such steps as curbing imports of Japanese seafood, citing safety concerns after the 2011 Fook thing. Fook thing, you make my heart sing. A spokesperson for the Korean Sport and Olympic Committee said it has booked a hotel near the Olympic Village to prepare and deliver boxed meals to its athletes, and in the country has run its own food programs at every Olympic Games to help its athletes feel at home. Relations between the two Asian neighbors already at a low ebb amid feuds over territorial claims in their wartime history, were further dented this week when Seoul said President Moon would not visit the Games for what would have been his first summit with Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga. 
The South Korean team, at the request of the IOC, removed banners with an historic reference to a 16th century war with Japan from their Olympic Village balconies. It's not uncompany. It's not uncommon for countries to bring their own chefs to the Olympics. The U.S. did that at Beijing. But the South Korean team has also stepped up its food safety checks at the Tokyo Games to gauge radioactive cesium levels. Its own chefs will be preparing about 400 meals a day. The World Health Organization, yep, same folks, said uh, five years ago Japanese authorities had monitored food contamination closely and implemented protective measures to prevent sale and distribution of contaminated food in and out of Japan. But the organizers of the uh, games withdrew plans to label food from Fuk and the other nuclear disaster-hit regions at the Olympic Village. Mmm, Fuk. I guess they didn't want the athletes saying that. Because of protests from some countries. Mmm, Fuk. Didn't want them saying that. Japan has said many nations, such as the U.S. and Australia, had lifted or eased Fuk-related restrictions, and Fuk food, including rice, is being exported to markets like Thailand. Like Thailand, meaning, I guess, they can't find rice anywhere else. The French power company that owns or co-owns a nuclear plant in China would shut it down if it could due to damage to the fuel rods. That's according to a spokesperson this week. But the decision is ultimately up to the plant's Chinese operator. Spokesperson for Electricité de France. Oh, come on. Electricité de France, EDF, said, while it was not an emergency situation at the Taishan nuclear power plant located in Guangdong province, it was a, quote, serious situation that is evolving, unquote. If the reactor were in France, the company would have shut it down already due to, quote, the procedures and practices in terms of operating nuclear power plants in France, unquote. The spokesperson did not directly call on China to halt operations at the plant, said it was a decision for its Chinese partner and majority shareholder, there you go, in the plant, the China General Nuclear Power Group, CGN. No, you do it. You're the majority shareholder. CNN first reported in June that the French company had warned of an imminent radiological threat at the plant, prompting the U.S. government to investigate the possibility of a leak. The company had also accused the Chinese safety authority of raising the acceptable limits for radiation detection outside the plant in order to avoid having to shut it down. Chinese authorities have denied any danger at the plant. Would you expect that? saying soon after a report on CNN there was, quote, no abnormality in the radiation environment and the safety of the plant was, quote, guaranteed, unquote. Chinese authorities declined to answer follow-up questions. I feel reassured already. Safe, too clean, too safe to meter, cheap. All of it. Our friend the Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got uh, some new jets in our uh, military. You've heard about them, I'm sure. The F-35, there's a version for each of our services. I don't think that there's one for the, spy, for the Space Force or the Spice Force, but the others have their own versions. More than 40 of the F-35s in the Air Force are currently without engines. 
So they're safe for your kids to fly them. This according to Air Force magazine. Top officials revealed the engineless nature of the F-35s to Congress a week or two ago before the House Armed Services Subcommittee. Acting Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, Darlene Costello. Hey, we've had an Abbott on the show, and now and now this. Said 41 of the fifth-generation fighters don't have an engine due to maintenance issues, while 56 power modules are currently being repaired at Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma. They're being repaired at Tinker. Tinker, I say. There are 272 F-35A jets in the Air Force inventory, so do the math, about 15% are without an engine. But man, are they still. They're quiet. You almost don't hear them sitting there. Lieutenant General Eric Fick, executive officer of the F-35 program, confirmed those numbers, but noted the exact number can be calculated in different ways. You know, without engines. What do you mean by without engines, really? A congressperson, Donald Norcross, Democrat of New Jersey, expressed discomfort about preventing funds to buy more F-35s, while a significant number of them are already in need of engines. The idea of rolling out a new aircraft with an engine while others are sitting, and I'm hearing the numbers, and we can argue over which ones they are, but that is certainly something that is a real concern, Norcross said. What good is an F-35 without an engine? One might ask. Why were the polls wrong in 2020? One might also ask. A new highly anticipated report from the leading association of pollsters confirms just how wrong the 2020 election polls were, according to Politico. But nine months after that contest, the people asking why are still looking for answers. National surveys of the 2020 presidential contest were the least accurate in 40 years. The state polls were the worst in at least two decades. According to the report from the American Association for Public Opinion Research, the AAPOR, unlike 2016 when pollsters could pinpoint factors like the education divide for the reasons they underestimated Donald Trump and came up with specific recommendations to fix the problem, the authors of the new report couldn't put their finger on the exact problem they now face. Instead, they've stuck to rejecting the idea that they made the same mistakes as before, pointing instead to possible new reasons for inaccuracy. As long as they're coming up with new reasons for inaccuracy, you know, they're doing the job. Quote, We could rule some things out, but it's hard to prove beyond a certainty what happened, said a professor at Vanderbilt, chair of the election task force. Based on what we know about polling, what we know about politics, we have some good prime suspects as to what may be going on. They'll hardly be comforting to pollsters and those who depend on them. Why would you be depending on polls at this point in time? The most likely culprit for off-kilter polling results? Key groups of people don't answer polls in the first place. I think it was almost 20 years ago that a certain Ms. Huffington and I formed a group called the Partnership for a Poll-Free America, and one of our first reasons for doing so was the declining amount of participation in polls by the members of the public. 
Nutty, huh? Decreasing response rates have been a major source of concerns for pollsters for more than a decade. But the politicization of polling during the Trump era appears to be skewing the results with some segment of Republicans refusing to participate in surveys. Pollsters say they can't be sure that's the main reason because you never know exactly whom you're not talking to. That makes the problems with polling a lot harder to fix than the diagnosis four years ago, which mostly uh, focused on adjusting surveys to account for Trump's popularity with voters who haven't earned college degrees. And his corresponding weakness among college degree holders. It seems plausible to the task force that perhaps, (laughs) plausible perhaps, that Republicans who are participating in our polls are different from those who are supporting Republican candidates who aren't participating in our polls, the chairman said. But how do you prove that? He asked. All right, then. One could hope that There'll be less airtime and column inches devoted to public opinion polling in the days and months ahead. But one would be wrong. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for your listening pleasure, news of the warm. The award-winning news of the warm. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen. Forget what award, but there was one. Oh, yes, you can trust me on that. Dateline Irvine, California, to meet an ambitious goal of carbon neutrality by 2045. California's policymakers are relying in part on forests, your forests and your shrublands, to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Now, researchers at UC Irvine warn that future climate change may limit the ecosystem's ability to form perform this particular service. A paper published this week in the American Geophysical Union journal AGU Advances contains a report by UCI Earth System scientists stressing that rising temperatures and uncertain precipitation will cause a decrease in California's natural carbon storage capacity as much as 16% under an extreme climate projection nearly 9% under a more moderate scenario. Quote, this work highlights the conundrum that climate change poses to the state of California, said the lead author. We need our forests and other plant-covered areas to provide a natural climate solution, removing carbon dioxide from the air. But heat and drought caused by the very problem we're trying to solve could make it more difficult to achieve our objectives. Almost as if the environment is fighting us from trying to save it. Trees and plants draw CO2 from the atmosphere when they photosynthesize. Some of the carbon ends up stored in their biomass or the soil. I believe uh, Joe Biden is uh, being denied the biomass. There's a threat of that. California's climate strategy depends in part on enhanced carbon storage to offset some of the emissions from transportation, power generation. The combination of this natural carbon sequestration system and measures to promote green energy, well, that's what's going to help the state reach its target of no net carbon by 2045, so they think. But the UCI scientists suggest an even more aggressive approach to curtailing emissions may be necessary. The emission scenario that we follow will have a large effect 
on the carbon storage potential of our forests, said the co-author of the report. A more moderate scenario in which we convert to more renewable energy sources leads to about half the ecosystem carbon loss compared to a more extreme emissions scenario. So, basically, cut back more. Stop this. And speaking of studies, a new study from Oregon State University found that infants born within two miles of oil and natural gas drilling facilities in Texas had slightly lower birth weights than those born before drilling began in their vicinity. It wasn't the same infants. They didn't get born twice. Don't, don't get me wrong. The study published in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives found the type of drilling or resource being extracted didn't change the results. So fracking, not fracking, oil or gas, you're still going to get a thinner baby. Congratulations. It's a thinny. And now, why it's the Apologies of the Week. Who could have expected that? We're so sorry. I guess I could have. I don't know whether you know this or not, but 17 million gallons of raw sewage was dumped into the Pacific Ocean a few days ago out of the Hyperion Water Reclamation Plant. That was water that was not reclaimed. And Corey Zuppo, co-chair of the El Segundo Environment Committee, the plant is located in the community of El Segundo near the L.A. airport, says, we're asking for accountability so in the future this doesn't happen. In a letter to Barbara Romero, a community activist called the sewage release, quote, an environmental disaster and imminent threat to the health and safety of millions of residents, unquote. He questioned how debris, including wood chips, concrete, paper, and grease, could clog the plant's filters to such an extent the dump was necessary. On its website, the sanitation department sincerely apologized for any inconvenience and said workers put up a, quote, valiant struggle. Their heroic efforts averted a much larger catastrophe and limited the discharge of untreated wastewater to 17 million gallons, which is a small fraction of the 260 gallons per day that could have polluted Santa Monica Bay for days on end. The plant has been operating since 1894. It's L.A.'s oldest and largest wastewater treatment facility. Repairs will take a month or more. Happy swimming. A South Korean TV network has apologized after using inappropriate images and captions to describe countries during the 2020 opening ceremony. The broadcaster MBC used images of pizza to describe Italy, upheaval for Haiti, Chernobyl for Ukraine, salmon for Norway, when uh, athletes from those countries entered the stadium. In its captions, the network referred to the Marshall Islands as quads, quote, once a nuclear test site for the United States, and Syria as a country that, quote, has a civil war going on for 10 years, unquote. NBC issued an apology saying, inappropriate images and captions were used to introduce some stories. We apologize to those countries, including Ukraine and our viewers, not including Ukraine. The chiropractor for the American women's wrestling team has apologized after she compared Olympic COVID-19 protocols to Nazi Germany. She said, 
She was sorry for my poor judgment and my choice to share this message. She's been chiropractor for women's wrestling since 2009. We went from flattening the curve in 14 days to going door-to-door -to, -door to see your papers. Got to admit, I did N-A-Z-I, that one coming, the Post said. She deleted her post hours after the AP brought it to the attention of the USOC. She will be required to undergo diversity, equity, and inclusion training. USOPC said this post that this volunteer shared is completely inconsistent with our values and we made this clear to her as soon as we became aware of it. As shown through her prompt removal of the share and her apology, she has shown clear remorse and committed to an educational process. That's all you got to do. She said she did not put any thought into how the ending of the meme might affect others. She was placing an emphasis on coercion by authorities rather than anything to do with Germany and the Jewish people. I now see that these are linked and can't be separated. I'm deeply saddened by this and wish to apologize for my poor judgment. I'm also sorry this may have been a distraction for the delegation, which should be focused on supporting our athletes to the best of our ability. A Massachusetts couple subjected to threats and other bizarre harassment from former eBay employees filed a civil lawsuit against the Silicon Valley giant this week. David and Ina Steiner say in their lawsuit in federal court in Boston, the company engaged in a conspiracy to intimidate, threaten to kill, torture, terrorize, stalk, and silence them in order to stifle their reporting on eBay. The, the couple run an e-commerce bites newsletter focused on the e-commerce industry say they were subjected to cyber stalking death threats bizarre deliveries and in-person surveillance from company workers they're seeking damages to be awarded by a jury in statement this week ebay apologized to the couple stressed it fully cooperated with authorities during their inquiry several former ebay employees were charged last june for their roles in the harassment campaign at least five have already pleaded guilty. Bad eBay, bad eBay. Journalist Susanna Olin was recorded spreading dirt on her clothes and face before reporting from a flood site in Germany in an apparent bid to make the report feel more authentic. She said she was embarrassed to stand in front of the other workers, relief workers, with clean clothes. She's now apologized. She said it was a serious mistake to add mud to her clothes before reporting from the areas heavily hit by deadly floods. A hearing conducted this week to um, announce a sentence for the unrepentant former leader of the cult-like Nixium Group, Nix yes, that's what it's called, um, was interrupted near the end when one of the lawyers of the defendant, Mark Furnish, lashed out at the, lashed out at the judge... Nicholas Garaurus, for not granting a delay in the proceedings so that Furnish could go to a funeral. Quote, it's a lack of human decency and it's disgraceful, the lawyer said. The judge said the schedule actually did give the lawyer enough time to attend. He then sat for a half hour in stony silence until the lawyer apologized. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And finally... News of the Godly. The discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves 
at former residential schools for Indigenous children in Canada, has prompted renewed calls for a reckoning over the traumatic legacy of similar schools in the United States, and in particular by the churches that operated many of them. U.S. Catholic and Protestant denominations operated more than 150 boarding schools in the 19th and 20th centuries. Native American and Alaska Native children were regularly severed from their tribal families, customs, language, and religion, and brought to the schools in a push to assimilate and Christianize them. Some U.S. churches have been reckoning with this for years through ceremonies, apologies, and investigations. Others, who would those others be? Others are just getting started. Some advocate, advocates say churches have more work to do in opening their archives, educating the public about what was done in the name of the faith, and helping former students and their relatives tell their stories of family trauma. Painful history has drawn little, relatively little attention in the United States compared with Canada, where there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission on this subject. That's a wake-up call to us, says Reverend Bradley Hauf, a Minnesota-based Episcopal priest and missioner for the Indigenous Ministries with the Episcopal Church. This month, top officials with the U.S. Episcopal Church acknowledged the denomination's own need to reckon with its involvement with such boarding schools. Interior Secretary Deb Haaland, the first Native American to be in the cabinet, announced last month her department would investigate the loss of human life and the lasting consequences of these schools. That would include seeking to identify the schools and their burial sites. U.S. religious groups were affiliated with at least 156 such schools, according to the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, formed about nine years ago to raise awareness and address the traumas of the institutions. That's uh, more than 40% of these schools documented so far by the coalition, 84 affiliated with the Catholic Church, the other 72 with various Protestant groups including Quakers. Most have been closed for decades. The director of research and programs for the coalition said apologies can be a good start, but there's a lot more to be done, especially information. Crucial given how little most Americans know about the schools, both in their impact on indigenous communities and their role, quote, as an armament toward acquisition of native lands, he said. Without that truth, he added, there's really very limited possibilities of healing. The United Church of Canada has apologized for its role. The Catholic Church's response in Canada is controversial. The Prime Minister said in June he was disappointed the Vatican has not offered a formal apology. Pope Francis expressed sorrow following the discovery of the graves and has agreed to meet at the Vatican in December with school survivors and other indigenous leaders. Influential voices such as the Jesuit-affiliated America magazine are urging U.S. Catholic bishops not to repeat their mishandling of cases of child sex abuse by priests and other religious leaders. The church in the United States, it says, must demonstrate it has learned from such failures. Four years ago, leaders of the Presbyterian Church in the United States traveled to Alaska's North Slope to deliver a sweeping apology. The Reverend Grady Parsons told the gathering the church had been, quote, in contempt of its own proclaimed faith. The church judged when it should have listened. It has taken us too long to get to this apology. Many of your people who deserve the apology the most are gone, unquote. News of the godly, right here, right then. 
That's Fini for this edition of the show. Next week, another one, same time on this radio station or at the time of your choice on your audio device of choice. It'd be just like me getting through that without fumbling. If you would join me then, would you? All righty, thank you very much. Uh A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, Pam Halstead, and Thomas Walsh, WWNO New Orleans, for help with today's program. The email address for the show, the playlist of the music heard here around in your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for your loved ones or for your hated ones, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the thing of the thing.